Titus chapter 2, and the title of our message tonight is really cool. It's a, it's a title we get from verse 14 of Titus 2, and the title is His Own Special People. His Own Special People. Our text tonight is Titus 2, verses 11 through 14. Smack dab in the middle of his pastoral letter to his young disciple Titus, we find the Apostle Paul, of course, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, he gives this incredible description of the people of God, the church, the very bride of Christ, that we are his own special people. And to be upfront and honest with you all tonight, Tonight's message is exclusively for the Christ follower. If you happen to be unredeemed tonight, if you are a non-believer and you manage to end up in this place or you are watching online and you still stand in a position of guiltiness before Almighty God because your sin has yet to be forgiven, then I want you to know at any point during this sermon, You can call on the name of Jesus. You can repent. You can change your mind. And you can believe in the gospel. You can put your faith and your trust in Christ. It is not too late. And once you have done that, you can enjoy all the benefits of good God Almighty, right? You can enjoy the benefits, the specific encouragements that we're going to look at tonight. Tonight, we're going to learn five specific characteristics of the special people of Christ Jesus. If you happen to like tonight's title, it's not because I came up with it, it's because God did. It's what we see in verse 14, his own special people. This word special, it carries with it a ton of meaning. This is actually the only time that you will find this specific Greek word used in the entire New Testament. The word special, I'm going to give it a shot, perios, periosios, periosos, if I were, yeah, I'm not a Greek speaker, if you can't tell, but the meaning of it is powerful. It means that which is one's own, a people selected by God for his own possession. That's awesome. It also means something that has been reserved For a particular purpose. If you have a King James version of the Bible, anybody got a King James version tonight? Yeah, there's there's always a bunch of you guys. It's awesome. King James is cool. If you look down in your Bibles, you will see that the word special is actually translated as peculiar. A peculiar people. And I kind of like that, to be honest. The word of God does describe us as a pretty peculiar people. We really are. We're a unique group of people because we aren't like the rest of the world. We're on a different path. We have a different way of living. And to the world who does not know God, we're all a bunch of weirdos. And what do we say to that? Amen, right? We're not like the world because this world is not our home. It isn't where our citizenship is from. The Bible tells us that our citizenship is in where? Heaven, exactly. And because that is so, we are a holy 
people. Not a holier-than-thou type of people, but God refers to us as a set-apart people. You should be open to Titus 2. Why don't everybody stand together for the reading of the Word of God tonight? I'll read the entire passage, but you follow along with me looking down in your Bibles or looking to the screens. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Let's pray. Lord God, we love you so much. We thank you for your Bible. Lord, every time we open it, Lord, you blow our minds. God, I ask that tonight that you would do just that. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be at work in this place, in our hearts, that you would take these powerful truths, this deep doctrine, and Lord, that it would change us, that you would make us more like Jesus. We invite you to do this tonight by the power of the Holy Spirit, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now, before we get into these five characteristics of God's special people tonight, I want to spend a moment looking at verse 11. Verse 11, when Paul writes, he says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And having a proper understanding of the grace of God is an absolute necessity when it comes to being a Christian. If you get this wrong, then biblically speaking, you are not a Christian. This is important. We must understand what the Bible has to say about the grace of God and how it pertains to our salvation, that it is everything about our salvation. It is this understanding of grace that separates true Christianity from cults who claim the name of Jesus. It comes down to the grace of God. Our salvation is only possible because of the grace of God. He extends our salvation to us as a gift that must be received. And our salvation is not even in the slightest according to anything that we've done or ever will do. You know, the only contribution that we have made to our salvation, we have made a contribution. The only contribution we made is our sin, the sin that needed atoned for. The saving work, God did it all. This is, this is the grace of God. And those who disagree with this teaching of salvation, by grace alone, they stand against a whole lot of Bible, which is not what you want to stand against. You want to stand with the word of God. Amen. Titus 3, if you just turn over a page in your Bible, you'll see in Titus 3, 5 through 7, Paul says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, But according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, 
whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Or what about the infamous passage of the grace of God and salvation in Ephesians 2? Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For by grace, everybody say by grace. By grace grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. The way to receive this this grace, this salvation that is of grace, the gift of God that is eternal life, is through faith. It's through exercising faith in Christ. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 through 10 says, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and what? Grace, Grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Notice back in verse 11 of our text tonight that this grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. I love this. There is not a single person who is excluded or exempt from the offer of salvation. It is available to all men. No one is off limits. You know, sometimes we think this person's off limits. We think that person's off limits. We, we wouldn't necessarily say it, but we're like, no way they could be saved. We've thought that before, haven't we? But God, from God's perspective, he says, I could save anyone I want. Anyone who wants to put their faith in me can have this salvation. And on the grace of God, R. Kent Hughes, Bible commentator, says, grace rightly perceived compels holiness. I really think that's good. And I think that's a great launching point, a great catapult into our first of five characteristics of the people of God. And that is number one, the special people of God are a pious people. A pious people. Might not, you might not have heard that word pious in a while. Uh, let's, let's start bringing that word back. It's a great word. Pious. This is what we see in verse 12 when the apostle writes, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. The word pious refers to deep devotion, fervor, reverence for the Lord. It can be used synonymously with the word godly. Piety is godliness. And here in verse 12, we learn that God's special people are to be those who deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. This word deny is awesome. The word deny, what it means is it means to disown. It means to reject, to disavow, to renounce. To forsake. And what are we to deny? 
the ways of this world, the worldly lusts, the ungodliness of this present age. It also means to repudiate. That word repudiate means to refuse, to accept, or even be associated with. I think that's good. As God's special people, we have disowned, we have rejected, we have renounced all that is ungodly. We should be those who refuse to accept or even be associated with what God refers to as ungodly and the worldly lusts of this age. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 2 says, but we have renounced the hidden things of shame. Renounce them. And in Romans chapter 6, verse 11, says, Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sin is no longer our master. Sin is no longer what our lives are for. The ungodliness of this age, the worldly lust that we once conducted ourselves in, you know, we need to remember that we were once those people. In 1 Corinthians 6, the Bible says, such were some of you. And we need to have that heart for the lost. Such were some of you. I used to be you. When we share with someone, I used to be you. I used to just walk in those worldly lusts. God freed me from that. And now I live for holiness. I live for him. The word ungodliness represents all that is against God. All wickedness. All sin. The more formal definition of ungodliness, you could say, is unrighteous. Unrighteousness by virtue of not giving proper respect for God and his institutions unrighteousness that comes from not revering God. How much unrighteousness is there in the world simply because men do not fear God? All of it, right? All of it. Romans 1.18 says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And in that small book, the very back of your Bible before Revelation, the book of Jude, verse 17 and 18, it's a great verse, couple verses for today. But you, beloved, this is a word to the church, but you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. That's where we're at today, ladies and gentlemen. That right there is the world that you and I find ourselves in. Mockers in the last time. But the Bible says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For that whichever a man will sow, that will he also reap. God will not be mocked. Sometimes we think, God, aren't you going to do anything, they're mocking you, and he is going to do something about it. He will do something about it. Christ is going to come back with eyes as flame of fire and a sword coming out of his mouth 
to strike the nations. He's going to do something about it, all right. God is not mocked. But what of these worldly lusts that are mentioned in verse 12 of our text tonight, that we are called to deny, that we are called to repudiate? These are those unrighteous desires of our sinful flesh for the things of this world. For all being honest tonight, our sinful flesh still wants the things of this world, still wants the sinful desires to be gratified, but we must deny it. These desires are what draw us away from the Lord if we're not careful. We must have this mind. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Strong word. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away. This world is temporary. And the lust of it, the lusts for this world are temporary. But he who does the will of God abides forever. And what's really interesting about these verses here in 1 John 2, 15 through 17, is if you think about it, these are the three things that when Eve was tempted by the serpent, the three things about the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that drew her away, that the serpent deceived her with. Look at Genesis 3, 6. It says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Good for food, lust of the flesh. Pleasant to the eyes, lust of the eyes. Desirable to make one wise, pride of life. It's nothing new under the sun. The ways of the world. We must beware of the allurements of this ungodly world. If you're a believer tonight, and you've been looking to the ways of this world for satisfaction or fulfillment. I identify with you personally. I used to be that exact same way. Eating with the pigs as the prodigal son did. When what your heavenly father has for you is incomparably better. Come back to him tonight. Though we once did, our BC days, before we knew Jesus, we no longer live for the ungodliness and the worldly lusts that are referred to here. We now deny those things and live a better life for greater things, greater things than just temporary pleasures. You know, that's all sin is, it's just a temporary pleasure. God calls us to something better. Something eternal. We're, if, if, if verse 12 tells us, the beginning of verse 12 tells us what we're to say no to, the ungodliness and the worldly lust, it goes on to tell us what we are to say yes to. 
And what do we say yes to? What we say yes to is how we now live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. We conduct ourselves in sobriety. This soberness that is being spoken of in our text tonight is all about having a clear and sound mind. This command to live soberly, yes, it means not being a drunk for sure, but in reality, what it's talking about is it's, ha- it's talking about having self-control over one's desires, over one's sinful passions, exercising self-control over those things. We must do this. Why is it important that we live this way? Well, for starters, a reason why is because we have a very real foe. We have a very real enemy. And we have targets on our backs. As, Christian, as a Christian, you have a target on your back. 1 Peter 5.8 says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the one who is against you, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. When's the last time you watched National Geographic and seen a roaring lion just stalking its prey? That's what the devil is seeking to do to us, to destroy us, to tear us apart. If you want to get wrecked and devoured by the devil, all you got to do is just not be sober and vigilant. You just got to relax, and he will, he'll get you. But if we're sober, if we are vigilant about these things, we're, t- we're protected by God himself. 1 Thessalonians 5, 6 through 8. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love. And as a helmet, the hope of salvation. We are of the day. And as those who are of the day, as those who have been illuminated by Christ, our eyes have been opened. It is imperative that we live soberly, exercising self-control over our sinful and fleshly desires. But in addition to living soberly, we are to live righteously. And I don't think we need to belabor this much. I think we probably have a good handle on what righteous means. But the, the simple way of thinking about it is what God says is right. What God defines as right. In the book of Romans, those who are born again believers, God's special people, are referred to as once being slaves of sin. The past tense. But now we are deemed as slaves of righteousness. Romans 6 verses 12 and 13 and then verses 18 and 19 says, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members, meaning your bodies, as instruments of righteousness to God. And then verse 18. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of what? Of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. 
For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. And finally, we are to conduct our lives in godliness, to be sober, to live righteously, and to live godly. To be godly is to act in accordance with God's nature. The formal definition of what godliness is, is showing fitting and proper respect and reverence for God. It's been said before that godliness is reverence manifested in external behaviors. Reverence for God that shows itself through a life lived for God. Psalm 4, verse 3. This is cool. The psalmist writes, But know that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly. The Lord will hear when I call to him. And all of this to say, as God set apart people, we are to walk in a set apart way. We are not called to be like the godly, the, the, excuse me, godless world, living for its ways. We are called to be different, set apart. We are a pious people. But in addition to being a pious people, secondly, we are a prepared people, or we should be a prepared people. This is what we see in verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you didn't know, this is like the unofficial theme verse of our church. You will often see it like when you walk into the main sanctuary before service, oftentimes on the screen back here. And it is so good. And in what way are we to be a prepared people? Are we to be Doomsday preppers type prepare people? Not necessarily. We're to be a people prepared for the rapture of the church. We are to be waiting. We are to be looking. We are to be watching for the imminent appearing of the bridegroom for his bride. Could happen at any moment. Looking, I know, yeah, right now would be great. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> oh, man. I often do that. I'm like, now would be a good time, Lord. You want to, right before I walked out here. Lord, this is, no, just, just kidding, just kidding. The words looking for, what they mean, what they translate to is looking forward to one's arrival. It's not just having our eyes on anything. It's having our eyes on the arrival, waiting with watchfulness. Not waiting just sitting around doing nothing, waiting with watchfulness for someone to show up. And what is the name of the one we are waiting to show up? Jesus, our Savior. means anticipating and expecting This is the same word, looking for. This is the same words that are used to describe Simeon in the book of Luke, early on in the gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 2. Simeon was a pretty cool dude. And he was waiting 
for the consolation of Israel. He was waiting for the Messiah. It says in verse 25 of Luke 2, And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents, Mary and Joseph, brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he, being Simeon, took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Simeon was waiting. He was looking for the coming of the Christ. And in a similar way, you and I are waiting the appearing of Christ when he will come and take us home. In a divine way, by the Holy Spirit, we're told in Luke 2, that Simeon had been told by God, the Holy Spirit had revealed to him that he wouldn't die before seeing the birth of the Lord's Christ. And Christ has promised to us that he will come back for us. We haven't necessarily been promised like Simeon that it will happen during our lifetime, but we should live as though it will. That's how God wants us to live. Philippians 3.20, for our citizenship is in heaven. We mentioned that earlier. From which we also eagerly wait. Are you eagerly waiting tonight? Are you eagerly waiting for Jesus tonight? For the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is our blessed hope. This blessed hope is our confident expectation of the blessing of being with our bridegroom. Hal Lindsey once said, man can live about 40 days without food and three without water, about eight minutes without air, but only for one second without hope. And you know, no matter what the enemy throws at us in this life, whatever he may be throwing at you right now, he can't take your blessed hope. He can't take it. Jesus has promised it. And you can have that hope always. From the very lips of Jesus himself in John 14, verses 1 through 3, he says to the disciples, are you a disciple tonight? Are you a follower of Christ? He says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so... I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will, what does he say? Come again and receive you to myself. And I love this last part, that where I am, you may be also. He went to prepare a place for us. And he's coming back so that we can be with him. It's awesome. 
Notice in verse 13 of Titus 2 that this blessed hope is the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Great God and Savior is talking exclusively about Jesus. He is our great God and Savior. There is a prophesied day, yes, where Jesus will touch down on the Mount of Olives. But at the rapture of the church, he appears in the atmosphere to receive his bride to himself. This is what we see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 through 17. For the Lord himself, just as Jesus said in John 14, he said, I will come and get you to receive you to myself. And in 1 Thessalonians, we're told that the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ, those who've died believing in Jesus, they will rise first. Their bodies will. Their spirits are already with the Lord. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Yeah. <laughs> I'll clap. Join you in that. The most important you and I can ever, uh, the most important question, excuse me, you and I can ever ask about the rapture is not about its timing. It's not about what it will look like. Those are, those are important questions, but the most important question is, am I ready for it? Am I ready for the rapture? There's a saying that I heard early on in my walk with Jesus that really changed my perspective on the rapture of the church. As a young believer, and maybe this, you connect with this, as a young believer, I saw the rapture of the church as this this daunting thing, this intimidating thing. I didn't realize that it was my blessed hope. And I remember hearing someone once say that if you stay ready, you won't have to get ready. I think that's really good. That's how we should be living, staying ready. Not trying to scramble everything together. Well, we don't know when Jesus is going to rapture his bride, so you wouldn't be able to do that anyway. But staying ready, living ready for the Lord to come and get us. Everything clicked for me when I considered this. As long as I stayed close to Jesus and lived for him alone, I'd be ready. My wife, she is 30 weeks pregnant and we are expecting our first child. I'm very excited about that. And... She's 30 weeks, so we're not quite at this point, but pretty soon we're going to get to a point where in both of our vehicles, we're going to have a hospital bag. We're going to have a bag that's got snacks, blankets, whatever we're going to need for when she goes into labor and gives birth to our beautiful baby girl. But we're going to have that bag in both of our cars, not just because, oh, it's a nice bag. we got to do something with it. No, we got to put it in our vehicles, one in my truck, one in her car, so that no matter where we go, no matter what we're doing, we're ready. We're ready for the birth of our child. And that's kind of how it should be with the rapture, staying ready, staying ready at any moment. And so we are a prepared people. As God's special people, we are prepared people, living in a way that pleases God and being busy about his work in this world 
until he comes back to receive us to himself. Thirdly, I want you to note down that we are a purchased people. This is what we see in the beginning of verse 14 when it says, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed. Anyone in here have a dog? I have a dog. I love my dog. Great little dog. Dogs are awesome. Man's best friend, right? They're great. I'm convinced God created them for the sake of our enjoyment and companionship. They're great. If you're not a dog person, I don't really trust you too, by the way. Because <laughs> that's, that's weird. <laughs> but for those of you who have a dog, imagine that someone abducted your dog. You're like, oh, no. And was holding your dog as ransom. As those who love that little dog with all that you are, you'll do whatever it takes to get them back. And if it means paying the ransom, paying the price, if it's 20 grand, you'll pay it because you love them. Well, some of us. Maybe I should have gone with a lower number. <laughs> but if paying the ransom, well, let me get back on track. If paying the ransom was the only way, we'd do it for those that we love. And it's kind of like you and I have been abducted by sin, by every lawless deed, and we were held ransom by it. And it's as though our loving Savior said, I will pay the cost to buy them back. I'll pay the ransom. That's exactly what he did. Didn't Jesus say in Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a what? A ransom for many. The word in Titus 2 that is used for redeem is the word that literally translates to release upon the receipt of a ransom. And our Lord, his blood was the cost of our release. Our redemption from sin was not cheap. You and I were expensive. It cost the very blood of God himself to purchase us back from the grip of sin. And I love how God did not send an angel. He didn't tap on Michael's shoulder and be like, hey, Michael, can you go do this for me? He didn't ask Gabriel, Gabriel, can you do me a favor? No, God himself took on human skin in the person of Christ and he shed his blood for our redemption. In Revelation chapter 5, the song to the Lamb, this is what is sung. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. 1 Corinthians 6.20 For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit which are God's. You know, praise the Lord that he wasn't a cheapskate when it came to our redemption, right? Can you imagine God trying to bargain some sort of deal with the devil? That's not, that's not what happened. No, the reality is that Jesus paid it all. 
all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. He paid it all, his own blood. 1 Peter 1, verses 18 through 19. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by the tradition from your fathers, but with the precious, the costly blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. The way we were purchased was through how Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. We were once under the bondage of sin, but Jesus came to liberate us from this bondage. You all know what to say. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. We are free indeed. In the Old Testament, there was this really interesting thing called a kinsman redeemer. Not too sure how familiar you are with it. But gotquestions.org, which is a great resource for Bible-related questions, and will give descriptions on certain topics, they give an excellent description on what a kinsman redeemer was. They say the kinsman redeemer is a male relative who, according to the various laws of the Pentateuch, had the privilege or responsibility to act on behalf of a relative who was in trouble, danger, or need. The Hebrew term goel for kinsman redeemer designates one who delivers or rescues or redeems property or person. The kinsman who redeems or vindicates a relative is illustrated most clearly in the book of Ruth where the kinsman redeemer is Boaz. In the same way, the Lord Jesus Christ bought us for himself out of the curse out of our destitution, made us his own beloved bride and blesses us for all generations. He is the true kinsman redeemer of all who call on him in faith. The kinsman redeemer all along was a picture of what Christ would do. Our fourth point tonight regarding being his own special people is that we are a purified people. This is what we see in verse 14, the second part. A purified people. And it says, and purify for himself his own special people. If our redemption speaks of how Christ bought us, our purification speaks of how he has cleansed us. The word purify means to cleanse. To free from the guilt of sin. To purge of evil. 1 John 1, 7 says, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. The blood of Jesus purifies and cleanses us. And in Isaiah 1, 18, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet. They shall be as white as snow. Though they are, like, they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And you know, connected to our purification is our justification. We've been, if you've been with us on Sundays, we've been recently learning that in the book of Romans chapter 8. 
And our purification and our justification teach us of how God sees us post-conversion. How he sees us after having been born again by Christ. He sees us now as wearing the white robes of righteousness. The white robes of Christ. Of his righteousness. And now... Even though you and I, having been born again, we still fumble the ball. We still sin. But because we've been purified and justified by the blood of Jesus, it's like trying to mark a white paper with a white crayon. You know, growing up, it's like, what's the white crayon for? Maybe this is why. To represent this. Other than that, it had no use. It's like marking a white paper with a white crayon. Still white. Still white. This is hard for us to wrap our minds around. This, the doctrine of purification and justification. That even as messed up as we were and as messed up as we continue to be and as often as we sin still, God sees us through the lens of the righteousness of Christ. Amen. Praise the Lord for that. And our fifth and final point tonight regarding the special people of Christ is that we are a purposed people. A purposed people. His own special people zealous for good works. After having been purchased and purified by Christ as his own special people, we now have a great purpose. And that purpose is to shine in this dark world. The way that we shine to this world is through, yes, obviously what we say, 100%. Nobody's arguing that. But it is also through what we do. And what God has called us to do are these beautiful things called good works. The way we shine is through good works. We are to be a people who are zealous for good works. We just read that. Zealous for good works. That word zealous speaks of eagerness, of enthusiasm, of excitement. And this has really been challenging me recently. Am I someone who is zealous for good works? You know, oftentimes... Those opportunities for good works, they seem more like inconveniences more than anything, right? Wasn't that the case in the parable of the Good Samaritan? The priest and the Levite seeing the man in need, having been robbed, left for dead, and what do they do? Oh, it's an inconvenient thing. I'm going to pass by on the other side. And that good Samaritan sees the person in need, helps them, goes above and beyond, takes them to the inn, pays for their stay, and says, whatever more it costs to take care of this man, I'll pay you back when I get back. Zealous for good works. We're not always that way, are we? But we should be. We need to be. And what exactly are good works? Don't overthink it. Good works are those kind and benevolent deeds that God has called us to do. The body of Christ should be leading the charge when it comes to good works. 
We should not let some godless humanitarian organization beat us to a need. We should be there first. We should be those who are quick to respond because we are zealous for those good works. Now make no mistake, we talked about it at the beginning. These good works are not what save us. No way. But these good works, they are what flow out of that saving faith that we have. They flow out. The book of James has much to say of this. James is awesome, pretty straight up kind of guy. He says, the faith that you and I have is a faith that works. I love what James says, how he puts it. He says, you show me your faith without your works. That's a sarcastic statement, by the way. And James says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to show you my faith by my works. You know, the world will know our faith is real through the way that we love one another and through our doing of good, being a benevolent people. When we do good in this dark world, we shine Jesus and we point people to him. Matthew 5.16 says this very thing, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and just think you are such a great person. Nope. That they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. When we do good works the right way, it points to the Lord and not to us. We're not to let our right hand even know what our left hand is doing. We do it in a way where only God sees it. And God will reward us openly, he says. If you do a quick glance through this small pastoral letter of Titus, you will see that there are several instances where Paul tells Titus to remind the church about these things called good works. In Titus 2, 6 through 7, just before our text tonight, likewise exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. In doctrine, showing integrity reverence and incorruptibility, but being a pattern of good works. Titus 3, 1 and verse 8 and verse 14, read them all together. Remind them, that is God's people, the people that Titus had been called to pastor, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey and to be ready for every good work. Verse 8, this is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, meaning this is a big deal, that those who have believed in God, have you believed in God? Have you put your faith in Christ? Then what should we do? Should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. And let our people, verse 14, also learn to maintain good works to meet urgent needs that they may not be unfruitful. We've been commanded to do good works because in doing so, we represent the kindness and the love of our God that we serve. And you know what good works also do is they swing doors wide open for the gospel to be shared. That's how every good work should be done, by the way. Don't just feed a man. Give him food and give him the gospel. Don't just give him a blanket to make him warm. Give him Jesus. Ephesians 2.10 says, 
For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're a purposed people, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And as we close, we are awestruck with the fact that we are considered to be God's own special people. That ought to make us feel something really deep. That he says, you are my special people. Not simply for his use, but to simply be his. Hmm. As his own special people, we are to be a pious people who do not live for the ungodly, worldly ways, but instead, day by day, choose to live soberly, which is self-controlled, righteously, which is what for God says he approves of and is right, and godly for that which is according to his nature. As his own special people, we are to be a prepared people who are ready for the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. For when he snatches us away from this dark world. Maranatha, right? Maranatha. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. As his own special people, we recognize that we are a purchased people. Who were bought at the expense of the very blood of Christ. He redeemed us from sin and the power of the grave. And because he has done so, we say, my life is yours, Lord. It's the only adequate response to be a living sacrifice. It is our reasonable service to simply say, Lord, the only thing I can do to properly respond to what you've done for me is live every day, every moment, all for you. All for you. As his own special people, we recognize that we are a purified people who have been cleansed of every sin and every fault. We've been justified by what our beloved Savior did for us on the cross of Calvary. And finally, as his own special people, we are a purposed people. That God wants to use as lights of the world. He has purposed for us to be those who preach the gospel and are careful to maintain good works. Because through doing good, we represent him well. We are those effective ambassadors of Christ. Praise the Lord that we are his own special people. Let's pray together. Lord, what an amazing thing to consider that we are yours. You've set us apart. You've saved us. You have purchased us and ransomed us from the power of the grave. That we will be with you forever. Lord, that you're coming back to get us. Lord, so much of what we talked about tonight, Lord, ought to just, our jaws ought to be on the floor because of the wonder of the gospel. Jesus, that you would 
die in our place, pay the punishment for our sin so that we could be with you. And Lord, we, we long to be with you. We hope you come soon. We live with that expectation. But God, we want to be found busy about what you're about, about your business in this world. That's the best way to be ready. Lord, I pray that, Lord, the, the many of us that are in this room and watching online would go out tomorrow morning fired up because we are your special people and because there is much to do. Use us, Lord. We invite you to do this in our lives. We love you so much. And when we consider the cross and what you went through for our redemption, Lord, we just want to be those living sacrifices. Lord, we praise you. We love you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.